Well, why don't you guys find your seats and uh, open uh, your Bibles with me. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so our ushers are coming around. You can uh, get their attention or you can follow along with us on the Bible app. I've been looking forward to saying these words for a long time. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus. Uh, we are starting our series in the book of Exodus. We're going to be, honestly, we're going to be here for a while, all right? We're going to be in the book of Exodus. We'll take a couple of breaks throughout the year, uh, but this will probably uh, take us all the way to Christmas, which I think is uh, plenty of time for all the guys in here to grow out their Old Testament beards, right? So, so like, forget uh, No Shave November. I think, like, for the whole book of Exodus, I think we should... By hope, hopefully by Christmas, we got a bunch of people looking like Moses, right? That would be awesome. Um, all the women are not amused and instantly hoping that we go back to the New Testament as soon as possible. But uh, we are going to be in the book of Exodus, and I am fired up about what God is going to teach us here. And uh, before we do, before we uh, jump into the text, I really want to uh, bring a little bit of clarification uh, on some things, kind of set this up. One of, the, one of the things that we need to wrestle with first as we jump into the book of Exodus is, what are we reading? What, what is this? As, as we start reading, what, what is the genre and, and how are we supposed to interpret that? Well, um, you could probably say uh, that Exodus uh, is what we would call narrative history. Narrative history. Honestly, it's a lot like what we were seeing in the Gospel of Mark. This is stories of real events that happen uh, in history. The, the title Exodus is actually the Latin form of the Greek word exodas, which means to exit, you know, that's uh, kind of shocking, or, or to go out from uh, a place. And so this is an epic story of God delivering his people out of slavery uh, in Egypt and leading them out into the wilderness and then entering into a covenant relationship with them. This story is awesome, and what we're going to see is that God is going to show off his glory, show off his power as he saves Israel and makes them his own. But if you were to um, grab a Hebrew Bible, uh, the, the, the titles are just a little bit different. So if you were looking for Genesis and Exodus, by the time you get to Exodus, the title in Hebrew is actually just the first few, a couple of words here in verse 1. If you're looking at verse 1, you see the Hebrew title, These Are the Names. That's the Hebrew title. And that's actually a really great title because it actually reminds you that these words, this story is just kind of a continuation of the story that already got started in Genesis. Meaning, it's really important as we study this book to remember that Exodus is a part of five books. The first five books in the Old Testament, in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books uh, we put together, the, the Jews refer to that as the Torah, right? The Hebrew word for instruction. Or you might hear me saying, in fact, I'm probably going to say this a few times, this word, the Pentateuch. Pentateuch. That's the Greek word for five books or one in five. But really, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's really one book. And the author who wrote these five books, it's really one, 
has a purpose that flows through the whole Pentateuch, and you can't really understand all the parts without looking at the whole. It makes sense? It's going to be important that we're doing that as we try to interpret what's happening here in Exodus. But speaking of author, uh, let's get that nailed down because it's going to help us to know who, who's writing this and why. That'll, that'll uh, clue us into some context and maybe help us with the interpretation. So I'm so, um, curious, does anybody know who the author of the Pentateuch is? Moses, yeah, Moses. In fact, I'll, I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of modern-day scholars that are, like, fighting that and arguing against that and dismissing that. Like, that, that couldn't, it couldn't have been him, and it must have been a whole lot later. It, it, uh, like, he wouldn't have even been able to write that. But um, I really want to uh, uh, make an argument for you, okay? Uh, I think it's important that we really do believe that Moses is the author of this book. Uh, one of the reasons that, that um, it, they may not have that kind of certainty uh, is because Nowhere in the Pentateuch does it actually state the author. It's not like one of Paul's letters where he literally signs his name to it. And so we're having to look for a little bit of internal but also external evidence to find who in the world wrote this thing. And we actually do have recorded in Exodus that Moses wrote some of these things down. So that's some evidence. But then also the earliest tradition, Jewish tradition, tells us that Moses was the author. But the best evidence... For Moses being the author of the Pentateuch is Jesus. Okay, so let me give you this argument. Um, Jesus, uh, we, just, we just went through the whole Gospel of Mark. Um, maybe you remember in, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus actually refers to the, the Torah, these five books of the Old Testament. He calls them the book of Moses, Mark chapter 12. Interesting there that he's actually even calling it one book. And then in, in Mark chapter 7, he quotes from Exodus 20 and Exodus uh, 21, and he actually says these are the words of Moses. And so the question is not like, well, should we trust the scribes? or sh Should we trust Jesus? Because Jesus says that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. Uh, now, here's, here's how I think about this. Um, obviously, you know that I'm going to trust Jesus, but there's a reason for that. Because if Jesus said something, said he was going to die and then be raised to new life. He said he was going to do that ahead of time. Now, if he didn't do it, then we can probably just feel bad for him, like he's crazy, or, or we don't trust him because he lied and, and, and he's not somebody that's trustworthy. But if he did it, if he said he was going to die and be raised to new life and he actually did it, then it means he is who he says he is. He is the Son of God and we can trust him. And when Jesus says that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, is that fair? Like we can trust him on that? So Moses is the author of this work, but who is Moses writing to? Who's, who's the audience? It's important for us to realize this is not his um, diary. This is not just a, a cool bedtime story. He's actually writing it to somebody. He has a, a reason for writing it. And, and I think it becomes evident at the end of the Pentateuch that, that Moses is really writing these words to the children of Israel, the generation of Israel that's about to enter into the promised land. Okay? Um, I, I've got a map for you here, and, and just so that you can kind of uh, remember what's going on here and get a little bit of context, uh, the children of Israel after this, they have been wandering around after God uh, brings them out of Egypt. They've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 
years, okay? And, and, and now uh, we're at the point you can see on the map here where they traveled around the kingdom of Edom and Moab, and they came here to Abel Shittim. Incidentally, this is when we were studying at Christmas time about Balaam and, and his, uh, he was prophesying. He saw them right here in the plains of Moab at Abel Shittim, and uh, across the way right here is Mount Nebo. That's where Moses is actually going to die. He's going to look across the Jordan River, and he sees the promised land, but he doesn't get to go in. But somewhere along the way here, Moses has been writing these things down for this new generation that's about to get to go into the promised land. John Salehammer has been, uh, his, his work has been really helpful to me in understanding this. And he makes this argument, I think he's right, that, that all of the evidence, all of the events uh, in Exodus uh, of, of them coming out of Egypt and then all the wilderness wanderings, all of that written in the Pentateuch is written as if that happened in the past. Just like Genesis, just like Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. All of that happened in the past, and now Moses wants the next generation to understand the significance of what's about to happen to them as they enter into the promised land and, and, and why God chose them, how he brought them out of Egypt, and how they're actually part of God's redemptive plan in history. He, this actually makes sense because um, in, even in the Pentateuch, we're going to read this a lot, there's an expectation that you're going to be teaching these to the next generation. In fact, later in, in Exodus, we're going to come to uh, the Passover. In fact, we're going to celebrate Passover in a few months together. It's going to be awesome. We're going to experience that together. But, but in, in Exodus chapter 13, we're going to get to the Passover, uh, and, and there was an expectation that they would celebrate that every single year so that they could tell the next generation the story of what God had done. And then later in the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, this, this is one of the most important passages to uh, the Jewish people. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And these words, you should, be, you should be talking about these words. You should be teaching these words to your children. There was an expectation. And then at the end of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 31, every seven years God said, I want you to assemble everybody together and I want you to read this law so that everybody can hear it. There's an expectation that they're, as they're going in and, and while they're in the promised land that we're, we're listening to these things, we're remembering what God has done so, so that we can really understand why He chose us and what that really means and how we're a part of a, a bigger plan. And so as we, th here's what this means. As we study the book of Exodus, it's important for us to remember there's actually two historical contexts that we need to keep in mind. This might be weird, so let me, let, let, let me give you an illustration that might help you understand this, okay? Um, let, let's, let's have an illustration from my history. My, my, when, I was, when I was a kid, I got really into uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. We went and visited... Um, Gettysburg, and I got little action figures and a cool gun, and all you know, I got the get up, and it was awesome. And I, when I, when I discovered this, I wanted to become a a Civil War reenactor because I'm a nerd. That's what I do. Okay, and, and so here's the thing: there's actually two histories there. There's the history of of me reading and learning about these things and, and, and wanting to reenact them. There's my history, but then there's also the history of those historical events themselves when Abraham, was, Abraham Lincoln was alive and, and the Civil War was going on. Does that make sense? 
So that's exactly what we're doing here as we study the book of Exodus. We need to keep in mind, one, who these things were written to and and when they were written and why they were because somebody received them, somebody was reading them and it made an impact on them. They were written to the generation that's about to enter into the promised land. But then we also need to remember 40 years earlier where these events actually occurred and you can see this map here. This is where the story is actually going to take place in the land of Egypt, and in fact, the end of the book of Genesis actually tells us, if you see this place right here in Goshen, that's where uh, Jacob and all of his kids have settled in the land of Goshen. That's where some of these events are happening. So here's why this is so fun. Because when we study the book of Exodus, we actually get to travel back in time a little bit, all right? We get to go to the land of the the pyramids, and and we get to experience a culture that's not like ours. And and i got to tell you, my inner Indiana Jones is just geeking out over this, and so I decided uh, this would be a great opportunity for me to... Honestly, I had a whole get-up. I was going to do that today. Uh, Carissa was not having any of it, and I'm pretty lucky that I get to wear this. This is not cheesy at okay. I just What I want to do is get you in the spirit of this, that we get to adventure back a little bit and experience a culture that's not like ours, uh, this, this ancient civilization that is, uh, that is full of political power and foreign religion. And, and, and honestly, I want you to be thinking about the Egyptian temples and the gods. You can see the symbols, the, the hieroglyphics. And the, uh, this is such a different culture than we've ever experienced before, and, and we get to Jump back into this setting for this amazing story. Is that not awesome? Is that ner- like, are you nerding out like I am about how exciting this is? Okay. Uh, can I preach in this? Is this okay? Or just a few of you? It's going to be super distracting. Let's, let's, let's jump into the book of Exodus, okay? But before we do, one more thing I want to ask. Um, I think it's important that, that we wrestle with this. I know this is like the longest introduction ever. Um, But I think it is good for us to be asking the question, why? Why are we studying the book of Exodus? Because recent attention has actually come to some people that are trying to say that Christians don't really need to study the Old Testament. Like that was written for the Jews. And so like we're Christians, we just need the New Testament. We just need to focus on that. And I want to listen, nothing could be further from the truth. The Old Testament actually reveals to us who God is and this plan that he has for us. And the Bible is this one story declaring the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the reason, two two reasons, if I can give them to you, two reasons we're studying. um, Exodus, one, I want us to know God. And that is so intensely practical that we would pursue him. We want to understand who he is. And in this, we're going to see his power. We're going to see his glory. We're going to learn his name. We're going to see his character. And we're going to realize that he is a God who deserves our worship. But not only are we going to know God, but we're also going to see his plan for salvation. We're going to see that in Exodus. Legit question as we jump into this is, how are we going to get to Christ every week? How are we going to get to Jesus every week? I mean, 
it, this is a little bit different than when we were in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, it's kind of easy to get to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And so, so as we jump into these stories in Exodus, it, it might not always seem immediately obvious that they're about Jesus, but that's why we need to keep Exodus in the context of the Pentateuch and the Pentateuch in the context of the story of the whole Bible because it's pointing to Jesus. All of it is about Him. As we jump into Exodus, especially because of this book, we can better appreciate the slavery to sin and our, our redemption out of slavery and the, that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb as, as pictured for us in the Passover and this, this covenant relationship with God and worship, and that's only possible because of Jesus. And, and so as we're reading the story of, of Israel, listen, I know it's somebody else's history. It's not, it's not yours. But this is really our story. I want you to see your story in their story. John Piper has said it this way. I think it's so helpful. Israel is the historical theater where the drama of every human soul is played out for all to see. What goes on inside you spiritually and every other person has gone on in his Israel historically. And the story is told so that we can see ourselves and see the world understand. If you want to know your own spiritual condition before God as a human being, if you want to know the greatest issues for all the world, you can learn it from watching the history of Israel as it is interpreted in the Bible. We're going to see the, the Israelites struggling under bondage and, and, and crying out to the Lord and then failing to love God. And it points to their need for a Redeemer. And as we look at the children of Israel, we've got to remember, like, we have the same heart problem they do. We have the same need for Jesus. And the historical narrative of the Pentateuch is, is uh, tracing the saving act of God as he, as he redeems and sets apart his chosen people. And it's through these people that he's going to send the Redeemer into the world so that he could draw us to himself so that we would worship him. So you know what's going to happen as we're reading the, the book of Exodus? If we study this, we're going to learn to love Christ. Because this story is pointing to the future, us looking back on what God did through Jesus. But not only are we going to love Christ, but we're also going to live sin. Because as we're going to see in just a minute, it was always God's plan. It was always his intention to bless the nations. And we're going to see that right here. And that just fuels our mission to take the gospel to those around us and around the world. This is going to be an incredible study as we jump into this book. So you ready for it? Well, let's get into the text. Right at, right at the beginning, we're going to learn something about God. And if you're taking notes, let me just give you a big idea before we read it, okay? Here, here's what we're going to learn about God this morning. Listen, listen. We can trust the God who fulfills his promises. Come on, church. We can trust this God. He fulfills his promises. You ready for this? Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, 
and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I'll give you two proofs that we can trust him out of this. Here's, here's one if you're taking notes. Um, look at how he keeps his promises. Look at how he keeps his promises. Now, um, this, might, this might not be immediately evident as you read that. I mean, some of you are like, that's it? Like, that's, that's all we're reading today? I mean, we're, like, we, we, didn't, we didn't even get to Pharaoh. We didn't get to Moses. Like, like the, the, I'm feeling kind of gypped. We're just going to stop at verse... Listen, the reason we're stopping at verse 7 today is not because I spent way too much time just setting up the book and now we don't have time to get into anything else. The reason that we're stopping here is because we just read something in the introduction to Exodus that ought to make us stop and say, Wow! He says, these are, these are the names of the, the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. So you got Israel, that's, that's Jacob, and you got all his kids, okay? And, and now all of their family, it says there's like 70 persons in all, uh, but Joseph, uh, he's already in Egypt. So, so here's what Moses is doing. Moses is pointing back to what's already happened. There's, there's obviously some backstory here. If you just picked up the book of Exodus and started reading, you'd be like, well, like who are these guys, and, and, and why'd they come to Egypt, and, and why is their brother already there? It reads like you should already know. This is, a, this is a recap of uh, uh, bringing you back up to speed of where we left off. This is what you're going to experience next month when you go to watch the new Avengers movie. Because at some point at the very beginning of the movie, they're going to have to remind you what happened. You remember what happened? Like the bad guy won and like half the people got wiped out. You're like, oh yeah. That's what Moses is doing right here. Just recap, bring you back up to speed. So, so we got Jacob and all of his sons, all the family, they're, they're here in Egypt, and then verse 6, Joseph, um, he dies, and his brothers and all that generation. So the story's kind of moving quickly beyond those characters. But then we get verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. The, the land was filled with them. I, I realize that sometimes we read these sections with a bunch of names. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like he had a kid, and he had a kid. They had a bunch of kids. Like we, we get. It doesn't really seem all that significant. But if you were paying attention in the book of Genesis, you come to verse 7 and you're like, it's happening. Just the way God said it was going to happen. Now, I know this isn't fair because we didn't preach through the book of Genesis, and so uh, we don't normally do this, but I think it'd be good for us to go look at it, okay? So I'm not going to put this one on the screen. I actually want you to turn there. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We want to know... Um, why in the world is this significant that uh, Israel is now like a whole bunch of people and they've multiplied and they've increased and it looks kind of like they're, they're a big nation of people. Why is that significant? Well, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, here's what happens. The Lord said to Abram, by the way, that's Abraham. He just hasn't had his name changed yet, okay? So this is Abraham. God comes to him and says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. 
I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's what's happening. God picked Abraham out and he said, I'm going to bless you. And he made some promises to Abraham. In fact, he made kind of three full promises, if you will. One, he said, uh, I'm going to give you a land that I will show you. So I'm going to give you a, that's why we call it the promise land. Because God promised them he was going to give them a land that they could call home. The second thing he said is, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Abraham, you're going to have so many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-great-great-great-grandkids. You're going to have so many. It's going to be a huge nation. And then third, I'm going to bless you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he's going to be a blessing to the nations. And so, so, so Abraham hears this promise. He's like, that sounds pretty great. I'm going to do that. So he leaves and he goes with God. And just a little while later, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's kind of getting a little discouraged. Because that, that was an awesome promise. Like, I'd love for that to happen. But it seems like that promise is kind of dependent on him having descendants, right? Problem is, Abraham has no kids. And so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 15, he's kind of wrestling with us. Like, God, you said like you were going to make me into a, a great nation. I don't have any kids. Like, if, if I die, I'm going I'm to end up having to leave all my stuff to my... I'm like, how are you going to make this happen? And God says, no, 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 I'm going to uh, give you, it's going to be your very own son shall be your heir. In fact, flip over to Genesis chapter 15, uh, probably just one page for you. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, I love this. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, here's, here's what God does. Verse 5 says that God brought him outside. I love that. Sometimes we just got to get out into God's creation and let the, uh, let the heavens declare the glory of God. He brings him outside and he said, look toward heaven. And number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I don't know why, but this is like one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Anybody else like stargazing? You, you enjoy doing that? It's, when you do that, when you go out and you like stand there, isn't it? There's something beautiful and awe-inspiring about that, isn't it? And God is giving Abraham kind of a visual illustration. He's like, come, come, come outside. Look up. Go ahead. Start, start counting. And I don't know, like, how long, you know, Moses stood there staring at the sky. I mean, maybe he did. Maybe he started counting. That would been a bummer if you, like, lost count at some point, right? I don't know how long he was trying, but at some point he started to realize, like, there's a lot of stars up there. He gets the hundreds, he gets the thousands, he gets the, and God says, so shall your offspring be. That's a lot of descendants. You can't even count them. But at this point, he doesn't even have one. But the text says, verse 6, that he believed the Lord. He believed God. Because the same word that spoke those stars into existence made a promise that he was going to make it happen. God made a promise. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And so then Moses tells us that um, later, Abraham did have a son. He had a son named Isaac. And then that promise that God made to Abraham, 
he actually passes down to Isaac. You don't have to turn here. I've got this one for you on the screen. But Genesis chapter 26, here's, here, here's his promise now to, to Isaac. He's passing the promise down. He says, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring. Sound familiar? I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Are we starting to hear some echoes in Exodus chapter 1? See, God made a promise to Abraham and then he made that same promise to Isaac and then he made that promise to Jacob and then Jacob, if you'll remember the story, Jacob had 12 sons. His family was kind of dysfunctional. And one of them, Joseph, they all hated him. All his brothers didn't like him. They actually want to kill him. And, and, and somehow they got talked out of that and decided to sell him into slavery in Egypt instead. But, as, as awful as that was for Joseph, God was with him. And eventually, he made him the ruler over Egypt underneath Pharaoh. And years later, if you remember the story, his brothers actually have to travel down to uh, Egypt because there's this famine in the land. They have no food, but apparently there's food in Egypt because uh, Joseph has been there. And so they go to Egypt, and there, who do they run into? They run into Joseph. This is his opportunity to get back at his brothers, but instead of, instead of revenge, he forgives them. Here's what he says. He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God's active in this story, saving the lives of Jacob and his family. And so Joseph tells his brother, go, go tell dad to come down to Egypt. Bring, bring him down here. I'll, I'll take care of him. Now, now look at uh, Genesis 46 on the screen. Here, here's, here's God's promise to Jacob now. Okay, We've seen it in Abraham. Uh, we've seen it in Isaac. Now God's promise to Jacob, he says this, um, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. So the promise goes from Abraham to Isaac, now to Jacob. The the, the promise is that their descendants are going to be made into this great nation. But let's be honest, as we're reading, there's so far, there's all sorts of reasons for us to doubt that this promise is actually going to come true. First with Abraham, he has no kids. How's that going to happen? And then you got Isaac, and, and his family's dysfunctional too. You got Jacob and Esau. You remember Jacob actually was a cheater, and Esau hated him, wanted to kill him, take him out. That would have ended the promise. And then we get Jacob's family and all of his kids, and now this, there's this famine that's threatening to wipe out this whole family. So all along the way, this promise seems to be on the edge of a cliff. Like, is it going to happen? And then we open up Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, and we read that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. It didn't seem possible, but somehow God made it happen Look at how he keeps his promises. Hey, do you know that you can trust the Lord? Do you realize that? Why don't you think about, put yourself in uh, the shoes of the children of Israel that are about to enter into uh, the promised land. 40 40 years later, now, 
and, and they're about to go uh, into the promised land. And, and, but, but, but you know that if you go in there, there's, there's a whole lot of enemies who don't want you. They're going to take you out. And, but God's telling you to go, and you've got to trust him. And so Moses writes these things down for you to remind you of what God has done. And so as you sit there and look around at all your cousins, at all, all of the rest of Abraham's great-great-great-great-great-grandkids that are about to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land, you realize God has already been fulfilling his promises. Look at what God has already done. There's something that he's trying to prove to us about God today. God keeps his promises, and we can trust him. Think about this. When, when, when we get into his word, we have this confidence that he does not lie. He does not exaggerate. He does not falsely get our hopes up so that we'll believe something that maybe will happen. He is sovereign and he is good and he has the power to accomplish everything that he says he will. I mean, all of us think, we, we, we've, we've all felt the, the bitter disappointment of looking to the people that we thought we could trust only to see them fail us, right? Whether it's politicians, our pastors, the people that you're partnering with at work that you were hoping you were really going to be able to rely on them or sometimes even the people that are closest to us, even, even, even our friends and family. And we're, we, we're kind of left with this, 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 this how, who, who can I trust? God is saying to us, there is one who will never fail. And every morning, we have the privilege of opening up this word, a word that we can completely trust. Isn't it awesome to be able to get into our Bibles and know the Lord? And know that he keeps his promises, and we really can trust him. Well, here's the second proof that we can trust him. Note this. Uh, look at how he blesses us. Look at how he blesses us. Now we're, now we're going to get personal, okay? Because Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 is the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham that he was going to become a great nation. And we look around, we're like, it's happening. But God's promise to Abraham was part of a bigger story that wasn't just for him. Uh, now let's, let's look at it. I know we, we already read it, but you can look at it on the screen. Here it is again. Genesis chapter 12. Here's the promise that God made to Abraham. He said, you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Listen, listen. It was always God's intention to bless the nations, not just Israel. That means you. God intends to bless you, and the Pentateuch is showing us God's plan of how we're going to get there. Genesis chapter 12 starts to show us how God is going to get us back to the blessing of being in his presence that we enjoyed with him right from the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, uh, God made the world, right? He made Adam and Eve, man and woman, and then Genesis chapter 1 tells us that he blessed them. God made us to bless us. He wants us to experience that blessing. But see, then in Genesis chapter 3, Satan stepped in and, and tempted. And we lost that blessing by our choice. And instead of blessing, 
uh, now we've come under the curse of sin. That we instead thought we could do it our own way and we didn't need God and we could come up with what was good on our own. And, and so now everything's broken. Everything, this, this is why we don't know who we can trust. But even in that brokenness, even in the curse, God made another promise. Do you know it? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here's God speaking a curse, not just to Adam and Eve, but also to the serpent, to Satan. Here's what he says. I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, he, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You might hurt him a little bit, but he's going to crush your head. All the way back in Genesis, at the very beginning of the Pentateuch, God is telling us that there's one of the descendants of Eve is going to come and crush evil and set all things right. So at the beginning of the Bible, we start asking this question, who's it going to be? Like, who, who's the one that's coming? Oh man, we're waiting for that one. It's going to be one of the descendants of Eve. So, 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 so is it Cain, his firstborn? Well, it's not him. He doesn't, he doesn't love the Lord. Maybe, maybe it's Abel. He seems like he... He's a righteous guy, but then Cain kills Abel, so apparently it's not him. Is it Noah? He seems like a righteous guy. But then in Genesis chapter 9, he falls. It's, just, it's not him. And then we come to Genesis chapter 12, and Moses starts to show us that that offspring of the woman is going to come through the family of Abraham. And so here we are, Exodus chapter 1. God is fulfilling his promise. The family of Abraham is grown and, and God is going to take this family and rescue them out of slavery, re lead them out into the wilderness and make them his own. And then he's going to give them a law, but it's a law that they're going to fail. They're not going to be able to do it and they're showing their desperate need for the one who would come and fulfill the law and rescue us out of slavery of sin and give us hearts to really love him. And so the language in Exodus chapter 1 is pregnant with the gospel. It's, it's pointing us. He fulfills his promises and he blesses us. He's always intended to bless us, but the blessing comes through Jesus. Now, God always has wanted to bless you, but don't, don't, don't cheapen that and, and, and substitute that, that promise with hopes of you know, lesser things like, like He's just going to give me more money or He's going to uh, make me healthy and give me long life or He's going to give me comfortable circumstances. It's so much greater than that. God wants you to know that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how hard it gets, you can experience Peace, inexpressible joy in his presence. That in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We can experience the blessing of God, but that only comes because of Jesus. We don't have to earn it. We could never earn it and never deserve it. But Jesus is going to come and fulfill the law perfectly and die a death he doesn't deserve, but die in our place so that we could live with him. And so as we get into this, what we're doing is we're pursuing him because we believe that. We believe that God is the God of the promise. 
and that all of his promises find their yes in Christ. It exalts Jesus. Do you know that you can trust him? I don't know what it is that you're going through today, but he wants you to know his intention is for you to experience that blessing. It's simply that we would put our faith and trust in Christ. Father, I thank you that you love us. Thank you for this word. What, a, what an awesome story. And we've just scratched the surface of this, and I pray that you would reveal to us your character. I pray that you would show us that you are great and glorious, that you are better than anything this world has to offer. Lord, I pray that we would hunger and thirst after you, because when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, you promised us that we will be satisfied. And I'm asking that today you would remind us and show us that we can trust you. We can trust your promises. Look at what you've done. Look at how you've accomplished the work that you said you were going to do. And it's through Jesus. And so we love to lift high the name of Jesus. We love to be reminded and come back to this again and again with the privilege of getting up in the morning and opening up this, this, this book that is filled with words that we can trust completely. Because when you say you're going to do something, you do it. You've proven to us that you are good and that you are faithful. And because of that, we love you. I pray as we uh, jump into Exodus, God, would you show us your power, show us your glory, show us the glory of Jesus, that we would love you more. Remind us again that this wasn't just for us. You wanted us to be a blessing to the nations, that we would live sent taking this gospel to those around us and around the world. God, there's no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus by which we must be saved. I pray that you would get all the glory that you are deserving of. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.